Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Hey, and welcome into the latest episode of NucleCast. Now, we have a very special guest today. You may, well, I shouldn't say may, you will definitely remember former Congressman Matt Thornberry, who was the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee and a longtime, 26 years, longtime member of Congress. And if you saw his list of awards for his service in Congress, you would be jealous. So I want to welcome former Congressman Thornberry to NucleCast as we talk about some really interesting and contemporary topics for today. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate you having me. It's good to be here, and it's always good to have a fellow Texan on the show. Um, I think the rest of the country is lucky that we're still part of the union. And uh, I just I feel they're very lucky to have us. So uh, it's always good to spread our wisdom to the other 49 states. Exactly. We need to make them more like us. (laughs) Amen, brother. Amen. How could you go wrong by having everybody be Texan? I just don't see the You know, the problem there. Now, we just had, uh, you know, it's been a month and a half or so, and we had a nuclear posture review. And in your time in the House, you've seen many nuclear posture reviews. So as you look at the latest NPR and sort of give your thoughts to what it means and what you see it doing in the long term, how it might shape the enterprise, as you think through it, what's your thoughts on this most recent nuclear posture review? Well, I would, I would say first, I'm kind of relieved that uh, it continues to emphasize modernization of our nuclear deterrent. Um, we, we have, as you know, a lot of programs going on, and those need to continue. And, and that is supported largely by this approach. As, as you also know, uh, it is some, this, this whole idea not only in the nuclear posture review, but in the national security strategy of integrated deterrence and what that means and and how does that relate to a strong nuclear deterrent is 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 somewhat controversial because there's some people who see that as kind of code words for putting less emphasis on the nuclear deterrent and relying on other things more. And, you know, I think all of us agree you need to have all of the tools available to you to to protect American national security. But there's still some uneasiness uh, about what that phrase and what that approach will mean when it comes to our nuclear deterrence. Yeah, one thing that based on what you just said, I've been giving some thought to integrated deterrence. 
And w- the way I have seen it is that it, it's, it appears that the administration is mistaking grand strategy for deterrence because really integrated deterrence, it's national grand strategy. It takes the aspirations of the nation and all of the means of national power and applies them to it. So it's not actually a deterrence strategy. Deterrence is, is an outcome. It's an effect you achieve as opposed to a strategy in and of itself. And I think you're right in this concern. And I don't even know if it's a veiled, it's pretty implicit that the administration wants to rely less on nuclear weapons. It says so. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I don't know, a couple thoughts. One is sometimes these verbal signals are, are sent and sometimes they're serious and sometimes they're just throwing a constituency sure. a bone. And, and I don't know. What, what I do know is that what matters more than any written strategy is where the money goes, where the actual programs deliver capability. And uh, so in my opinion, that's what you got to keep your eye on. Less about the pieces of paper, more about where the money goes. Now, as you, one of the things that the advocates of nuclear disarmament have consistently said is that we cannot afford to spend $1.2 trillion over the next 30 years. It's just unaffordable. And I, you know, I think back to, you know, one of my favorite examples is uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which reports that they lose about $70 billion a year to waste, fraud, and abuse. That's more than the entire nuclear enterprise costs by quite a bit, actually. And I don't hear anybody throwing a fit over it. I bet you didn't even know that. Nobody does. But it's... It's more than the nuclear enterprise, and nobody says, man, we got to crack down on all that waste, fraud, and abuse. But yet, somehow, this argument that it's unaffordable is believable to many Americans. And I wonder, in Congress, is there who is, you know, the House's primary responsibility is budgeting, and they, you know, they begin all the budgets. So surely there's widespread understanding that nuclear weapons are not this unaffordable item that disarmament advocates claim it is. Yeah. Well, I do think you see bipartisan support for modernizing all three legs of the triad. And you've seen it even just this week in both the House and the Senate with the votes on the defense authorization bill. So I, I do think it's there. Um, I, and And also, if you look at this in any particular year, all of the nuclear modernization money is never more than 7% of the defense budget. So, and, and you consider then how important it is and how uh, all of our other really defense efforts in protecting our country are based upon a credible nuclear deterrent. It's hard to say that, no, we can't afford 7% of the defense budget to do that, much less compared to the uh, uh, health care spending and other programs of, of government. So it, it's an argument that's used, but I, I take some heart that you have seen consistently 
support in both parties, in both houses of Congress for this modernization of the delivery systems. Now, as I think to modernization of the the strategic triad, and, you know, we were at new start levels, we're at 1,550. And as I think strategically as, as a planner, uh, I take heart if, if I'm putting myself in the Russian and the Chinese perspective, I'm happy that the United States is modernizing its strategic triad and canceling and not focusing on theater, like low yield theater nuclear weapons, because I, as a, the Russians can fight any war I need to fight with theater nuclear weapons, because I don't ever want to get into a, you know, a shooting match with the United States where ICBMs are going across the poles, but I might want to be able to use low yield, short range uh, nuclear weapons against NATO and avoid trying to go strategic. And the United States has essentially taken itself out of that game, both in, in Europe and in Asia. And so I wonder if we're playing into the hands of the Russians and the Chinese by focusing solely on strategic modernization and not developing new theater, low yield theater delivery capabilities is, is, am I wrong here? Is that something that we should be thinking about? And how would we get, you know, the Congress, the administration to think about these challenges? Yeah. Now I think you're posing a harder question because (laughs) while there are bipartisan majorities in both the house and the Senate for modernization of the delivery systems, If you start to have a conversation about the weapons themselves and the characteristics of those weapons, it becomes much more controversial politically. And and I think your point is exactly right. And it's really been a flaw in our arms control negotiations with the Soviet Union, now Russia, uh, all along that we just focus on whatever gets arbitrarily labeled as strategic weapons and the tactical, the shorter range, the, the different yields that they have and, and, and that Putin has threatened in, in recent weeks. Absolutely. That those are never even considered. And, and uh, that becomes so much more problematic if you add the Chinese into the equation as, as well. So I, I think you're right. I want the U.S. to have as many options as possible. I want to complicate the calculations of Putin and Xi and North Korea and anybody else who is looking to do us harm. And that means different size weapons, different characteristics of the weapons. And, and we need to begin to, we need to have that conversation. And then you have a whole nother conversation of, okay, if you decide you need a weapon that looks like this, can we do it? Because uh, obviously we're still keeping the 1970s and 80s version of our nuclear weapons alive, thanks to some great smart people. But it, it can't last forever. And so the whole can you can you develop a new weapon? Can you manufacture it? Uh, all of those questions also don't really get asked very much. Yeah. So you mentioned 
building these these weapons. And, you know, you used to represent Pantex, Pantex, a manufacturing plant. And I live in Kansas City and spend time down at the Kansas City plant. And the big challenge for our, within the nuclear enterprise, the manufacturing side, is that we have so many modernization programs going on that we they really can't handle all of the you know the the work that there is to do i know at, at kansas city for example when they originally built the new facilities which i'm sure you helped fund they thought that there was too much floor space there and that they would never need it but in reality they consumed it quickly and are now in a whole bunch of other leased buildings and so we've not been able to effectively manage uh, for these modernization efforts. And I wonder, as you think through it and sort of look at this, how do you see us being best able for, uh, you know, a Russian breakout, the Chinese expansion, if we need to to start actually making new warheads, additional numbers, if we need new plutonium pits, which is a big problem, how do you think we would be able to get that you know, through an administration, through Congress, uh, then, you know, build these facilities and capabilities quickly. Is that even possible? Yeah, it's possible. Uh, And I don't mean to be simplistic, but it takes leadership. Uh, You need a president who will explain why it's needed and and use his or her uh, political power to push it through as well, as well as Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Energy and, and so forth. And, and we really haven't had that. You know, several years ago, there was a commission that, again, looked at broad national security strategy. And one of the points they made is this industrial capacity in our nuclear enterprise is a deterrent in and of itself. Because adversaries have to consider what it can do and, 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 and take that into account. And, and it's only logical that if you don't have the ability to build new weapons or to replace pits in this case or, or whatever, then, then that encourages adversaries because it's a weakness on our side. So you know, some of this stuff is really expensive. Um, Probably we over-engineer some of these things, you know, uh, versus how we've done it in the past. But but we still don't have what we need as far as the manufacturing capability to be responsive to a rapidly changing situation, much less a flaw we find in one of our existing weapons. And And so, again, that's where... This dynamic world situation with Russia, China, others uh, pursuing have or pursuing nuclear weapons, we're not equipped to to be agile enough to 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 deal with that. I'm afraid. Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. And we we have, you know, for the majority of Americans, they they don't really contemplate that we could have a failure across an entire class of warhead or delivery vehicle that that's your, you know, sort of your, Oh shit moment. And then we have to fix it. And we're just really not postured to do that. Now we're about halfway through the show. Go ahead. I'll let you take the, the, finish your statement. 
No, I, I just wanted to, to go back and say, but leadership is just essential. I'm, re, I'm reading uh, a book on President Reagan and the, and the amount of time he spent explaining to the American people what the nuclear deterrent, what they were doing, why they were doing it is remarkable. And we just haven't had that since, even though in many ways the world is more dangerous now than it even was then. Yeah, certainly more adversaries trying to to fight us in an asymmetric way. What's your What's the book, by the way? I'm curious if I've read it. Uh, it's it's uh, recently uh, out by Will Inboten, who teaches at the University oh, yeah. of Texas. It's called Reagan, the Peacemaker, uh, and it's a remarkable reminder not only on the nuclear side, but how everybody can think. Oh, the country is going downhill, downhill, and one person can make a real difference. Yeah, excellent. Okay, well, we're halfway through the show, so we're going to take a quick break. We're talking to former chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Mac Thornberry, and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Okay, and we're back. We're talking to Mac Thornberry, uh, former Hass chairman, and I want to shift the conversation and talk a little bit about Congress and who you see as playing that leading role. You and John Kyle and a few members were the sort of the leading voices, you know, back in in the original negotiation, a new start that said, hey, we'll give you this, this arms control treaty, but we want modernization. And so who do you see now playing that role, advocating for modernization, advocating for the kinds of capabilities we need? Who Who's leading in Congress and who, who might step up to play critical roles in the, you know, the years ahead? Particularly now that we just had a midterm. Yeah. Um, I, I think there are some leaders who are or will step up to meet the need because they have this kind of broad understanding of what's important to U.S. national security. But but it is true that uh, those of us who grew up in the Cold War and, you know, I first came to Washington as a staffer in the 1980s, were really focused on these strategic nuclear issues and and for people who have come to Congress uh, in the last couple decades, it hasn't been that much of a front burner sort of concern. So that's a long way of saying one of the things we need to do, in my opinion, is to reinvigorate the kind of strategic study and thinking and discussion 
about these issues. Now, hopefully Putin's kind of helped motivate us a little bit on that. But but in Congress and in think tanks and in, you know, all around the national security community, we need to to work more on these issues. I think in the Senate, uh, Senator Deb Fisher from Nebraska has has really been a good leader on on strategic issues Um, in the House. He's he's working on a lot of things, but Congressman Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin is very thoughtful, understands the bigger picture. uh, And he's one not only now, but in the future, I think, can can be uh, a a real leader. And one other I'll mention in in the House, uh, Congressman Mike Turner, who's now who's going to be the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, for many years was the chairman of our strategic subcommittee on armed services. And so he understands not only our programs, but what the other guys are doing too. And so I think his voice will be influential in the house. Now I used to, you know, I spent most of my career with the air force and would spend time on the Hill talking to staffers and members about strategic issues. And I often found that, you know, your average MLA is for for a member on the house side is is quite young. And, you know, they they're a college graduate, and maybe they're they you know they did an internship, and then now they're back for a full time job, and they they tend not to have a lot of experience or knowledge. And you know, members sitting on committees worrying about constituent issues, oftentimes don't if they don't have something big in their district or not really well-versed in nuclear issues. If you were to give advice to those of us who, you know, work these for the military and, you know, have spent our careers devoted to this and then are now trying to write and advocate, what would you say would be the best things we could do to reach out, help inform members, their staffs, particularly in those places where they don't have, you know, a Stratcom or a Pantex or a, you know, Los Alamos or, or, you know, one of the major missile bases for those folks, you know, it's, it's not a pressing concern, but how do we still sort of speak to them in a way that's compelling? Well, I, I, it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about a while ago. You, uh, you have to start with why it's important, how it does connect to things that they care about. And if uh, you're a member of the Armed Services Committee or Defense Appropriations or Foreign Affairs, even if you don't have one of the facilities in your district, you have an interest in the global geostrategic security situation. And, and, and nuclear weapons, nuclear deterrent is the foundation upon which all our other efforts are, are based. Uh, it, you know, we can do this or that with some conventional systems, but it's not really going to matter very much if we mess up on the nuclear side, obviously. So I, I do think starting with why it matters and how it has changed just in recent years, partly because of of, of Putin's conventional inadequacies threatening to use nukes, partly because the Chinese have taken a dramatically different turn that complicates our cal- calculations. It complicates the India-Pakistan situation. 
it uh, it it just adds so much uh difficulty to the international situation i think i think kind of that context is is really what members of congress and especially their staffs need to hear because we all tend to get kind of focused on what's in front of us we need to be reminded about that bigger picture and how it fits together yeah that's a great point and so if you were to say you know do this would it be write op-eds in the hill would it be do podcasts would it be go on tv would it be show up to talk to folks in their offices what specific things do you think would be the wisest allocation of time and resources to try to help folks understand you know the nuclear issues yeah well, uh, the, the obvious answer is uh, all of that. Uh, I mean, you, you can influence the direction of opinion with op-eds and podcasts and TV appearances and so forth. It does it does make a difference. If, however, you can find uh, a member of Congress who can really make a difference and, and get to their staff or something, then that can have disproportionate effect because the especially in the house the senate maybe not quite as much but in the house members tend to specialize in mm-hmm. certain areas and and so if there's somebody who's respected who is saying look we got to really pay attention to this nuclear stuff other members will tend to listen to them um because they know they've done their homework on it and you can't do your homework on everything. You got to pick and choose your issues. And so that's why what you and I were talking about, focusing in on those folks who have the potential, either are or have the potential to be the most influential and in swaying other members' opinion, that can be helpful. But don't neglect the public part of it because they also have to listen to their folks back home. Sure. Uh, and the questions they get at town halls and all of that can also play a role. Now, and we're talking about influence and members and the arms control community is, you know, relative to those who advocate for modernization and a robust nuclear deterrent. Arms control is, is much, much larger. They're, they're much better funded. Um, you know, for every one organization like ANWA or, you know, uh, Another organ, NIP, the National Institutes of Public Policy, there's four or five organizations advocating for disarmament. And I, I sort of wonder how effective are these organizations in shaping, you know, the executive branch, Congress, and with their thinking, with their writing. And, and part of the reason I ask this is because I often hear my colleagues uh, who are on the other side advocate. They say, well, listen, we can replace nuclear capabilities with conventional capabilities. We can destroy the same targets. We can, you know, we're, we've got all these precision guided munitions. We don't need nukes. And, and I ask them, I said, well, don't you understand that Russia and China, they don't fear our ICBMs and, in, you know, uh, Wyoming and Montana and North Dakota, they don't think we're going to, you know, nuke them with ICBMs. What they fear is 
our conventional capabilities. That's what they're scared of. And so they, they build nukes to deter our conventional capabilities. And what you're telling me is you want to build more of what they fear and get rid of what they don't fear. And so I just wonder how effective are they at shaping what Congress thinks uh, with their advocacy and to me, what are arguments that are really pretty poor arguments and not well grounded? Yeah, it's 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 interesting. If 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 we were to chart the history uh, of this, I think going back through the Cold War, there is a school of thought that says nukes bad, reducing them good no matter what the consequences, and that arms control treaties are the goal within itself. Yes. Um, I, I remember somebody wrote years ago, pieces of parchment are not what I want to stake my family's security on. And and yet, I, you know, a lot of these groups uh, get their money, have their advocacy just to get a piece of paper signed. Uh, and then, by the way, they care less about whether it's actually complied with and and verified and so forth. They just they just want the the the, the piece of paper. So I think they and and so there are people in Congress who are still receptive to that message. Um, but but going back to what we talked about a while ago, in a lot of ways, we've had a strategic thought holiday. Uh, since the end of the Cold War. Uh, you know, we were focused on terrorism for, for all that time, and we really haven't had the discussion in public, in Congress. We haven't put the time and effort into these strategic nuclear issues. What makes sense? How do we best protect the country? We haven't really focused on that stuff much since the 90s. So th- that's my point, that we need really a reinvigoration of of those things so that it's not just kind of an emotional oh nukes are bad kind of reaction that you really use your head and 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 think about it and one of the ways to do that is to remind everybody the success of america's nuclear deterrent since 1945 and what we have prevented from happening um and and again i think putin is kind of opening the door for us to pay attention to that again because just like you said, it's his conventional weakness that is leading him to threaten whether he's you know, how serious he is is a matter of debate. But he's threatening to use tactical nuclear weapons uh, to make up for his conventional weakness. And uh, it, if it were to happen, obviously, it presents us with some real difficulties on, on how to respond. Yeah. And, and we're often for those that advocate for modernization, we're often told, well, you, you know, you just, you're stuck in the cold war. And, uh, you know, having been in Congress for, you know, a quarter of a century, you know, since the end of the cold war, uh, I, I sort of wonder is you think about all the change you've seen in your 26 years, how, I wonder as we've moved down 90%, 95%, our operation deployed strategic nuclear weapons are, there's 95% are gone. The entire tactical arsenal is gone. And so there was a recent critique by a arms control advocate named Joe Sorencio or, um, 
not Joe Serencione, it was another fella. Um, drawing a blank all of a sudden, um, Tom Kalina. And he said, well, the Biden administration's NPR is just Cold War thinking. And I thought, I don't know how you can say that, my friend. It's, uh, you know, this is nothing like the Cold War. As you, you know, think about your time in Congress, do you do you really see that everybody's sort of stuck in the Cold War? Because that's not what I see. But maybe that's what you see. No, and and one of my rules of thumb is whenever anybody kind of tries to stick a label on something, uh, be suspicious because if if you're just trying to win an argument by calling somebody your name or or putting a label on it, there's it, there's probably more to find out by digging digging a little deeper. And and I, I do think this. There is bipartisan concern about what China is doing. Uh, so as you pointed out, we're at 1,550 strategic weapons. We have come down so far that it has made it very enticing for them to equal us. And it has become public that they are well on the way to doing that much sooner than we ever expected. And, and so now, rather than just us and Russia, we have this third party, which complicates things tremendously. And as as China goes up, and if you're India, you're saying, "Wait, I can get to fifteen hundred too. I better match them." And if you're and then if you're Pakistan, you're saying, "Oh, well, if they're going to match them, I'm." And my point is, with all of these players jockeying around, it is a much more a dangerous situation, even than we faced during the Cold War. And part of the reason it's become dangerous is because we are down to so few nuclear weapons and so few choices in the kinds of nuclear weapons that we that we have. We've made it enticing for these other people to to catch up. So it's not the Cold War. Actually, it's it's more dangerous uh, in many ways. And and so it's going to require the best of us in Congress, out of Congress, in the executive branch to to try to develop a path to 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 keep the country safe. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, whether you love him or whether you hate him, when Donald Rumsfeld said weakness is provocative, he was 100 percent correct. Yeah, it's a fact of history. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank former Congressman Mac Thornberry, former chairman of the House Armed Services Committee and longtime member of Congress who's who's been around to see the many changes we've seen since the end of the Cold War. And so thank you for coming on NucleCast. It was enjoyable, and we hope you'll come back again soon. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate you having me. Well, as you well know, we just had a great interview with Mac Thornberry, former uh, chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, it was a great show. I guess one of the big points I took away from it was that if you want to have influence uh, in on the Hill, focus on those members who specialize in nuclear issues and help them be even better at those issues 
because they're going to they are widely respected and looked to by other members. And so that might be the best way to have influence and and to help nuclear issues, you know, get the understanding and the the depth that they need. So that's my big takeaway. I'll always be interested to hear what you think. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Gumball. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nucleotast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.